Good morning, everyone. My name is Adam. I'm so excited to be with you all, and I'm glad that you chose to spend your Sunday morning with us. Before I get into the message, I just wanted to say thank you to everybody who sent me cards and food items during this month of pastor appreciation. I'm pretty new to this whole pastor appreciation thing. Like, after the first week, I just ripped my name off of that nicely decorated box out in the lobby because I thought after a week, that was it, and I was just going to use that box and repurpose it for Halloween candy, but I was told that I stepped outside of my lane, so I'm not going to mess with the nicely decorated boxes anymore, but I just wanted to say thank you. I feel so encouraged and appreciated to be here, and I've really enjoyed serving and worshiping God with you all. It's hard to believe that I've been in this interim role for about six months now. In some ways, it feels like time has flown by, and in other ways, it feels like I've always been here. Like, I think of you all as my church family. And I also know that some of you might have some questions about where we're at as a a church in this whole transitionary period and uh, how long I'm going to be in this kind of a role. So because of those questions... I asked Josh Jones, one of the pastors at Bridgewater and someone who's on our directional leadership team, to give you all an update on that next week. So he's coming down here to preach, and he'll also just fill you in on some of the details on where we're at in this transition of leadership and what's ahead for us as a campus. So I really want to encourage you to be here next week. I think it's something that you don't want to miss. As we get into the message this morning, I want to just pose this question. What comes into your mind when you think about God? What comes into your mind when you think about God? Theologian A.W. Tozer once wrote in his book, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or based as the worshiper entertains a high or low thoughts of God. I think it's very bold of anybody to make a statement about what they think is most important about a person. But I also think that Tozer is on to something here. When you think of God, do you think of him as just like the Christian deity, like a power up in the sky? Or do you know him as your heavenly father? When you think of God, do you think of him as a cosmic killjoy, someone who just has a list of do's and don'ts and tells you how to live your life, or do you see him as the one who has a plan and a purpose for you? When you think about God, do you think about just worshiping him on Sunday mornings, or do you seek to worship him in every moment during the other six days of the week? And what comes into our minds when we think about God It's perhaps the most important thing about us. And so my hope for us this morning as we get into God's word is that we will just see how great and awesome God is, that we will have a high view of who he is and that it will lead us to be better worshipers of him. So if you would like to follow along with me this morning, you can turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 5. If you don't have your own copy of God's word, we have a bunch of Bibles just outside of those doors on a table, you are more than welcome to pick up one of those Bibles and take that home with you. That is our gift to you. And we'll also have the scripture up on the screen. So Exodus chapter 5. And before I get into it, 
I'll give you just a, a little bit of a background of where we are in this story. We've been in a series for uh, two weeks now. This is the third week in our series called Exodus, the Human Story. And we're talking about how the events that took place 4,000 years ago and how God delivered his chosen people out of Egypt parallels the story of our own lives. And then in the first week, we talked about how the nation of Israel ended up in Egypt. They moved there during a time of famine, and they put down roots and began to grow as a nation. But generations later, there came to be a king over Egypt who was afraid that if they ever fought against the Egyptians in battle, that the Egyptians would be in trouble. And so he puts the Israelites into slave labor, and he even sends out a decree that all the Israelite boys are to be thrown into the Nile River, all the baby boys. But there was one slave family who defied the king's order, and they kept their baby hidden for three months. And at the end of those three months, the mother made like a little boat, not, nothing more than a basket really, and she laid her baby in it and set this boat in the shallows of the Nile River. And I think that what happens next is really the first miracle in the Exodus story, because it just so happens that the princess of Egypt comes down to bathe and she sees this baby boy and she feels sad for it. She ends up adopting this baby and naming him Moses because he was drawn up out of the water. And Moses was raised as Egyptian royalty, but he still felt a sense of loyalty to his people, the Israelites. And one day when he was out and about, he saw that an Egyptian slave driver was beating an Israelite. So Moses looked around, and since he didn't see anybody, he killed that Egyptian and hid his body in the sand. But then it, other people found out what Moses did, and when the Pharaoh found out, he wanted to kill Moses. So Moses ran from Egypt all the way to Midian, and in the land of Midian, he kind of had a fresh start. This was his chance for a clean slate, and he began to settle down, but then God got his attention and called him back to Egypt to deliver his people out of bondage there. And that's where we're picking up in this story. In Exodus chapter 5, in verse 1, Moses and his brother Aaron are before Pharaoh. This is what it says. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. I think if we asked Pharaoh what comes into his mind when he thinks about God, he'd think, Ah, that's just the God of the Israelites. Pharaoh lived in a culture where they worshipped hundreds of gods. They had a God for the sun, a God for the sky, a God for the Nile River. Pharaoh himself even thought that he was a God and a mediator between the gods of Egypt and the people of Egypt. And so for him, it wouldn't have been a big deal just to add the God of the Israelites to his list of other gods. But what Pharaoh was not okay with was a God that would tell him how to live his life. And so he asked this timeless question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? And I think that this is a question that a lot of people still ask today. 
A lot of people are okay with the concept of a God. Like very few people are actually very adamant atheists, but a lot of people don't like the idea of a God who will tell them how to live their lives. And even for us as Christians, you obey or disobey God based on your view of God in that moment. And so every time we disobey God, in a practical sense, it's because we have a low view of who he is. And Pharaoh had a very high view of himself and a very low view of God. And so he would not let these people go. In fact, he made their slavery even harder. He started demanding more for them to do in their labor and made things even worse. And I'm sure Moses felt like this was a failed mission. Like God sent him all the way back to Egypt just so Pharaoh could say, no, I'm not going to let the people go. But God had some words to say to Moses, and we'll read about that in chapter 7, verse 2. This is God talking to Moses. He says, You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring Israelites out of it. So when Pharaoh says, I will not let the Israelites go, that didn't throw God through a hoop. That didn't mean that God had to then switch to plan B. God is always on plan A. And so for him, it was actually according to his plan that Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go. God says that he'll even harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will bring these judgments on the nation of Egypt. And he would show the Egyptians, he would even show the Israelites that he is the Lord, that he is worthy of obedience and worship. And he'll answer Pharaoh's question, who am I that I should obey him? And so God sent 10 plagues on the land of Egypt. And I wish that we had time to talk about all of them individually, but we are covering seven chapters in Exodus this morning. And so I really want to encourage you to go back and you can read it for yourself from chapter 5 to chapter 12. But we'll begin with just talking about the first plague that God sent on the land of Egypt. And in verse 20 of chapter 7, we'll read about that. So Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood the fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. When I think about this first plague, I just imagine an, an Egyptian scooping up some water and taking a sip of it right when everything turns into blood. Like if I was that Egyptian, I'd probably think that I swallowed my tongue, and then I'd go around looking for some water to wash it down and find that all this water 
has turned into blood. And what takes even less imagination is just to picture how bad the smell of this river would be. Like, if I go to the beach and there's one dead fish out there, let me tell you, I know about it. And so for there to be a whole river full of dead fish, it probably smells worse than, like, my dirty socks after a long day of work. It's pretty bad stuff. And this plague that God sent on the land of Egypt was like a smack in the face to their Egyptian goddess, the goddess of the Nile River. This goddess's name is Happy. And the Nile River is largely responsible for the prosperity and wealth of Egypt at that time in history. It's because of the Nile River that they had rich and fertile soil to plant their crops in, and they used the Nile River to irrigate their fields and used the Nile River for transportation. And so Happy, the goddess of the Nile River, was associated with prosperity and the good life. But with this plague, God shows that he is the one who gives prosperity and the good life. He's the one who gives and takes away. And he shows that the goddess Happy is nothing. And maybe you would think that this was enough for a pharaoh to think, all right, maybe now I should listen to God. But we see this is not the case. If we just look down at verse 22, this is how Pharaoh responds. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not take even this to heart. So this begins a pattern. God would send down a plague on Egypt and show the greatness of his power. And then Pharaoh's heart would be hard and he would refuse to let the Israelite people go. And then God would send another plague on Egypt and Pharaoh's heart would be hard. And so God sent an infestation of frogs on the land of Egypt. He sent invasive swarms of gnats that torment the people and still, Pharaoh would not let the people go. God sent a plague that killed the Egyptian livestock and another plague that covered the Egyptian people with boils. And still, Pharaoh would not let the people go. But I want to take a look at Pharaoh's response to God when God hits the land of Egypt with the most terrible hailstorm in all of history. This hailstorm I imagine it's probably like bigger than the size of golf balls. Probably like gave people concussions, and I know that it wiped out their crops and caused a food shortage. In chapter 9, verse 27, this is what happens. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron, and this is while the, the hailstorm is going on. The Egyptians are getting beat up. And he says, this time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay here any longer. Moses replied, When I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop, and there will be no more hail. So you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear God. For someone who thought that he was literally an Egyptian god, 
I'm sure it was tough for Pharaoh to say, all right, all right, God was right, I was less right. And maybe you think that he's got a change of heart here. I mean, he's even using kind of religious language. He's saying, me and my people have sinned. But let's see if Pharaoh really has a change of heart. We'll skip down just a couple of verses to verse 33. It says, Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hand toward the Lord, and the thunder and hail stopped, and the rain no longer poured down on the land. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had stopped, he sinned again. And he and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. So, false alarm. Pharaoh goes and pulls a typical Pharaoh move. Like, as soon as this, this uh, hailstorm stops, then Pharaoh hardens his heart, and he says, hey, just kidding, I'm not going to let the people go. And we see that Pharaoh wasn't really sorry about his sin. He was just sorry that he was experiencing the consequences of his sin. And as soon as God ended the storm and gave Pharaoh a relief from these consequences, he just went back to his old ways. But here's the thing. Don't we do that sometimes? Like we call out to God when we need him. And then when he gives us what we ask for and we finally have release, relief, then we put God on the back burner until we need him again. And I, I hate to compare us to Pharaoh, but sometimes we're kind of like him too. And, and even after that, God sent another two plagues on Egypt. He, he sent a plague that brought total darkness on the land and a plague of locusts. And still, Pharaoh did not let the people go. It wasn't until the last plague, the plague of death. God said that he would come through the land of Egypt and kill the firstborn male in every household, even the firstborn male above their, among their livestock. And so the morning after God went through and did that, it says that there was not a house in Egypt that did not have somebody who died. And you would have to run away from the land of Egypt to just get away from the sound of people crying out in grief over the death of their loved ones. And with this final plague, God said, I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. And God was answering that question that Pharaoh asked in the beginning. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? The Egyptians believed that their gods provided them with life and prosperity. But God totally dismantled the idea that their gods were anything. And he pro proved that he alone is the one true God. I'll say something a little bit out there, so like, hang with me for a minute. But even in God's judgment, God was also displaying his mercy God allowed the Israelites to experience the full effect of the first three plagues. And then God gave them a free pass on the next six plagues. And it's not because they had earned that from God. It's not just because the Egyptians are the bad guys and the Israelites deserve better treatment. 
In fact, after living in the land of Egypt for so many years, the, the Israelites had adopted the Egyptians' practices of worship, and they too were worshiping their false gods. And so with God sending these judgments on Egypt, he was showing both the Egyptians and the Israelites that they were putting their faith in false gods. And here's the truth for us today. God will destroy every idol to show me that he alone is God. Now imagine that nobody is going to go home this afternoon and like take a little shrine off their shelf and then toss it in the garbage can because they were worshiping it. Honestly, that's what usually comes to my mind when I think about idol worship. Like that's what people in other religions do and they like bow down to some kind of statue. But I was talking to one of the pastors at Bridgewater who used to be a missionary in Taiwan. And he said that even in these countries where people are like worshiping and bowing down to a statue, it's not because they have a sense of loyalty or they think that little piece of wood is something special. But they worship that false god because of what they think that god can offer them. And I think that we do the same thing. We worship false gods because of what we think those idols can offer us. And our gods just look a little bit different than the gods of Egypt or the gods of other religions. So let me introduce you to some of the American gods that we worship. We have the god money. And money is the god of comfort and prosperity. And we worship money because of what we think we can get from it. And some people, literally, they sacrifice their family, and their kids to the God of money. Maybe not literally, but it breaks my heart to see people who are just chasing after another dollar so they can have a nicer house, a new boat, or their dream vacation. And at the same time, they're not even parenting their kids. They're just paying somebody else to do that. And I would hate for anyone to come to the time in their life when their kids have moved out of their house before they realize that money is not a God worth worshiping. And we just think that if we can get that next paycheck or get that next pay raise, then that'll just soothe the longing of our hearts. And even though we know that millionaires and celebrities statistically are some of the most unhappy and discontented people, we think that if we had the kind of money that they had, that we would be the exception and that it really would give us a sense of happiness and fulfillment. The other God that I think we worshiped sometimes goes by the name of smartphone. And yeah, and smartphone with buzzes, dings, and notifications will let you know that it's always with you. And it comes through for you in those moments when you're like out in public and you, you don't have anything to do or it's an awkward social situation. So you pull out your phone and it just captures your attention. And you can spend hours just watching TikTok videos or scrolling through social media or playing around and, and make, doing games and stuff. And it's not that those things are necessarily bad, but most Americans would say that they are addicted to their smartphone. And I'd like to say, I don't worship my phone, not at all. But then I get that screen time um, alert like every week and it shows me just how devoted I am to this device. I went through a phase a few months ago where 
I was convinced that I was spending too much time on my phone. So I went into my settings and I turned off all the color on my phone and just made it black and white. And my whole idea was if I just make my phone look really drab and like gross to look at, then I'm not going to be on it nearly as much. And it kind of worked. Like I finally took that step and then I just deleted social media off my phone. And I'm not saying that's the Christian thing or that's what you have to do, but if you feel like you can't go a week without your phone or, or you couldn't take a break from social media, maybe it just goes to show that it could be an idol in your life. Because how many of us have those moments where we just fiddle around on our phone and then like an hour later we think, what did I just do with my life? And then we're still, we still have busy lives and we feel like we don't have time to read the Bible, spend time with our families, or even come to God in prayer and maybe it's because we're following after this false god in our hearts. The other god that sometimes we might worship is the god of relationships. And the god of relationships promises fulfillment. It tells you that you can find your happiness and your worth in another person. Maybe it's that person that you're dating or your spouse or your friends. And you look to that person to find a sense of fulfillment you want to be able to caption all your pictures like hashtag relationship goals and just paint this picture of your life. But relationships are not a substitute for the one true God. And maybe you're in a season of life right now when it feels like the things that you've been looking to for fulfillment are just falling down around you. The things you look to for happiness and comfort are really just letting you down. Maybe what we're looking for from our idols is something that can only be found in God. And those things are just coming up short to point to us that what we're looking for can only be provided by God. That God is the one who provides for all your needs. That God is the one who gives you good things to enjoy. And that God is the one who gives you value and a sense of joy. You know the saying, you learn and live. I heard this a lot from my pastor growing up, so this is why I remember it. But he would say that, switch that around. That's not the best way to live. You're better off to learn and then live. And my hope for you this morning is that you will learn from the example of the Israelites, even from the example of others, that there are so many gods that are just not worthy of our attention and they do not deliver We'd be better off to learn and then live. And I've watched friends and family members chase after things other than God because of what they believe those things could offer them, and they've just come up short. And I don't want that for any of you. My prayer is that when you think of God, that you will think of him as the one true God, the one who can really satisfy all of your needs and desires and the one who is worthy of all your obedience and all of your worship. And the second point for us this morning to remember is that God desires to bring me out of slavery and into worship. And I want to go back and revisit the final plague, the plague of death. The Israelites experienced the full effect of the first three plagues, and then God gave them a free pass on the next six plagues. And for this final plague, God made a way for them to be delivered from death if and only if 
They followed God's instructions. And that's what we will read about in Exodus chapter 12. In verse 21, God gives these instructions to Moses to pass on to the people of Israel. It says, Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. These, the firstborn in all these, these Israelite families could be saved from this death, but only if they believed God and followed his instructions. If they were to find one of their lambs that was spotless, like they couldn't take a lamb that had a broken leg or some weird discoloration in the fur, but they would find a lamb that looked perfect on the outside, and then they would slaughter that lamb and paint its blood on the door frames. So then on the night when God was coming through and taking the lives of the firstborn, when he would come to a household with this blood on the door frames, he would see that the lamb was sacrificed so that the people in the house would not have to be. And this day is called the Passover because if that blood was on the door frames, then God would pass over that household. And from then on, God declared that the Israelites were to have an annual ceremony of remembrance of the Passover and to remember how God spared their lives in the land of Egypt. And God gave them instructions to have the same kind of meal that they ate on this night of the Passover. And we can read about some of those instructions in Deuteronomy chapter 16. I'm just going to quick flip over to that and read verse 3. This is... God's instructions for the Passover. He says, Do not eat it with the bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste, so that in all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure in Egypt. And I just want to bring our attention to this phrase, what he calls the bread of affliction. And then just Tuck that phrase away in the back of your minds, and we'll revisit it in just a little bit and make a connection. But now I want to jump all the way to the New Testament to talk about a celebration of this Passover meal, which is probably the most significant Passover celebration in all of history, and it's also known as the Last Supper. So if you'd like to turn with me, you can go to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 in verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to go prepare for it, they asked. 
He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. And so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this, divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is celebrating this Passover memorial with his disciples. He takes the bread, breaks it, and gives it to them. And I'm sure in this moment they expected Jesus to say, this is the bread of the affliction. For him to point back to the symbolism of the bread in the day that Jesus spared, that God spared the people of Israel when they were in Egypt. But instead, Jesus assigns a new meaning to this bread. And he says, this is my body given for you. And just as the Passover meal was meant as a memorial for people to look back and remember God's deliverance, for us today as New Testament believers, taking communion is a way for us to look back at what Jesus did for us on the cross and how he was the one who died so that we would not have to experience eternal punishment. If you'd like to take out your communion cup at this moment, you can do that and begin to just peel back the top layer to get to that little wafer. And there's, there's nothing super spiritual or mystical about eating this bread. It's just like how the unleavened bread that the Jews were eating just made them think back to that significant moment. And that's what this is for us, for us to think back what Jesus did for us on the cross so that we could have a relationship with God. Let's take it together. And if you want to just get a head start on peeling back the top layer to get to the juice, you can do that. I love how the symbolism of the Exodus story sets up the foundation for what Jesus would eventually do on the cross. When Jesus was uh, on the earth during his earthly ministry, he approached John the Baptist, and John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus is like that Passover lamb, that perfect lamb that was slain so that, that its blood could cover the door frames and that, so that the people inside the house would not have to experience death. Jesus was the perfect son of God on this earth who was slain for us so that our sins could be covered by his blood. And if you are a believer in Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees that you 
do not have to experience eternal punishment because Jesus took that punishment for you. And as we take this juice together, it's a reminder of the blood of Jesus that was spilled for us. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Let's take this together. I just want to close with this thought. When you think about God, think about his love for you. When you think about God, think about his incredible mercy. Because we are like those Israelites. We're chasing after the desires of our hearts and giving ourselves to gods that really shouldn't have a place in our lives. But even in our brokenness and in our mess, God showed mercy to us. He made a way for us to be saved. And Jesus died in our place so that we would not have to experience eternal punishment. And my prayer for you is that when you think of God, that you will remember these truths. And my hope is that when you think of God, that you will have a high view of who he is and all that he has done for you, and that it will lead you to worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't deserve your love and mercy. I know that I'm so guilty of chasing after the desires of my heart. And those things, they really don't satisfy. You are the one who gives and takes away. You are the one who really provides for my needs. And I ask that you would give me a contentment, a fulfillment in you alone and who you are. I ask that I would be chasing after you and I pray that for everybody here that they would seek you first, that they would have a high view of who you are, that we would remember your mercy and your grace and your love and your greatness, that there is nothing you can't do You are worthy of our obedience. You are worthy of our worship. And I just ask that we would be people who give you that worship that you deserve. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.